0: Machine learning models allow our applications to perform highly accurate inferences. A model can be used to classify a picture of a cat, or to predict what movie I might want to watch. But before a machine learning model can be used to make these inferences, the model must first be trained and deployed. In the training process, a machine learning model consumes a dataset and learns from it. The training process can consume significant resources. After that training process is over, you have a trained model that you need to get into production, and this is known as the deployment step. Deployment can be a hard problem. You're taking a program from a training environment to a production environment, and a lot can change between these two environments. In training, you are running your model, you're training your model in an environment where you have access to lots of resources, and it's a different machine than what it's running on in production. And this can lead to compatibility issues. If your model is trained in one environment and you deploy it to another, who's to say that it's going to run in that new environment? If your model serves a high volume of requests once it's in production, then you might need to add scalability to that model. And in production, you also need all kinds of things like caching and monitoring and logging... Large companies like Netflix and Uber and Facebook have built their own internal systems to control the pipeline of getting a model from training into production. Companies who are newer to machine learning can struggle with this deployment process. And so these companies usually don't have the resources to build their own machine learning platform like a Netflix or an Uber. Diego Oppenheimer is the CEO of Algorithmia which is a company that has built a system for automating machine learning deployments. This is the second cool product that Algorithmia has built, the first being the Algorithms Marketplace that we covered in an episode a few years ago. They still run that product, and it's quite a fascinating product. I think if I wasn't running Software Engineering Daily today, I would certainly look at Algorithmia as a place to potentially build on top of because it's this marketplace of different algorithms that you can access via API. But this show is not about that algorithms marketplace. It's about the deployment system that they've built, which leverages their previous system. So in today's show, Diego describes the challenges of deploying machine learning models into production and how that deployment system was a natural complement to the algorithms marketplace. Full disclosure, Algorithmia is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Diego Oppenheimer, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Ah, Thank you very much for having me. You are the CEO of Algorithmia, and the last time we spoke, we talked about your algorithm marketplace. So some people use Algorithmia for deploying their machine learning models, and other people call those machine learning models. How has that marketplace evolved since we last spoke?
1: Absolutely. So interesting enough, you know, when you're building a marketplace, a lot of times people are going to talk about this chicken and egg problem. And, you know, how do you get supply? Uh, You know, if you don't have demand, how do you get demand if you don't have supply? And one of the things that we had looked at is we said, well, we think there's a lot of supply out there. And this is something that we kind of covered last time. You know, there's a lot of people who've created algorithms, functions, models that they want to do. Um, And so we we spent a lot of time thinking about like, well, how do we get the path to acquisitions as easy and as, as smoothly as possible from a software development perspective, you know, so how does a developer, you know, essentially, you know, could we get it down to Git push, right? Like that was the, that's the meta way of approaching this. And essentially we, we built a lot of tooling, a lot of UX, a lot of, you know functionality. So to make it, you know, as close to all you really need to do is from your terminal do a git push, and then uh, you can essentially like, publish out your algorithms, functions, and models. Surprisingly, in the world of data science and machine learning, this is a tool that didn't exist and, and, and really attracted data scientists and machine learning engineers because of the difficulty that they were having grabbing their TensorFlow models or Keras models or Scikit Learn models, and and actually being able to publish them and host them and run them in production. So our what the tooling that we initially initially built for easy acquisition or for making the life of developers easy ended up being kind of like the actual gateway for you know people really looking at us and saying, hey, this is exactly how I want to do deployment and hosting because it makes the whole process so easy.
0: So you were seeing people use the algorithmic deployment system that you made for a marketplace. You were seeing people use it for just their own models. So deploying their own models and then consuming their own models that they
1: deployed. Yeah, exactly. So this interesting concept is we saw this category of what we would call private algorithms start really rising and especially when it came to how much they were being used. So like we would look at the algorithm in the marketplace and we say, okay, so there's these algorithms that are being published and other people are consuming them or models that are being consumed. But then there's this really large, rising category of models that were being put into the platform never published publicly to kind of like essentially you know the public index but had a massive amount of consumption. So this idea of like they were essentially using our tool as a private hosting service for their models and the volume was actually really impressive. So we started exploring kind of what that experience looked like and and who those developers were and and what they were doing. And what we found was that there was this non trivial amount of data scientists and machine learning engineers who were really struggling going from, hey, this works on my laptop to I can run this as a large scalable service that is needed for my applications. And look, happens to be that if I just put these things in private mode in Algorithmia, this is exactly what I needed. So it was one of these, uh, you know, we had a general idea that this was going to happen, but like actually at the speed and the quantity and volume at which it picked up was really kind of the surprise. The
0: developers who were doing this who were deploying their own models and then consuming their own models what were the problems they were encountering with the other ways that they were trying to deploy their models into production sure there's a couple of different
1: things that were happening one very different skill set right so if you think about uh, the skill set that a data scientist has or the machine learning engineer has highly trained in statistics understanding kind of like what the new frameworks were how to do data processing but scale APIs, monitoring, uptime, these are just things that are not really part of the lingo or things that they've in generally encountered. But given the teams and how they're being built at these companies, they were essentially being put in charge of doing not only the data collection, structuring, modeling, ETL, the whole thing, but then on top of that, now they're expected to run kind of services. And this is just not something that they have experience for. So they would be bringing in platform developers or other engineers to actually build that out for them, which ends up with bespoke solutions. So you kind of get these like one-off serving platforms for specific models. And then you get the problem of, you know, when you're, essentially throwing code over a wall for somebody else to like productionize as you well know. Oh, you know Now you suddenly get like bifurcation of code, like updates that don't make sense. Like it's just the software development process actually breaks down quite a bit. And so what this does is by automating kind of the production side of things, it allows the data scientists and machine learning engineers to continue having control over the full life cycle without having to worry about how the production part really like have to build it themselves. And on top of that, We still give the kind of monitoring tools and the scale and the security and things that the platform team would want from a back-end perspective.
0: So as the CEO of the company, this puts you in an interesting position because you were seeing that people were using the platform for one case that it was not originally designed for, but I'm sure there were plenty of other people who were continuing to use it for the algorithm marketplace purpose. Was there any tension between thinking about those two use cases and trying to build a solution for both of those products at the same time?
1: You know, the interesting part is that it's actually the exact same mechanism and it's the exact same platform, right? So, so this was just more a uh, difference in uh, behavior that we expected. We still need to acquire these models, we still need to have more of them. One of the things that we noticed is that actually people will come to host their private models, but then also explore the marketplace to kind of attach it as if it were, you know, to build out AI pipelines. So really what what changed to a certain degree was how the acquisition was gonna happen. So if you think about how people come to us, we initially were like, okay, well, they might come to us for a specific sentiment analysis algorithm or for a crowd augmentation algorithm or for some sort of image processing algorithm. But the truth was that like we have a large amount of people that come to us to host their own models and then go out and explore the marketplace as like a kind of add-on. Which if you think about it is really in line with how platforms work, right? So if you think about how you know the most popular platforms out there that we work with you know, they start out with the platform and then they add kind of like add on marketplaces or add on perspectives. And this was not something by design, but natural behavior that ended up with our developer population, which is they came because we solved their immediate problem, which is how do I host this? And then they found things to complement their workflows right there.
0: So I want to talk about the engineering of this machine learning deployment system. So as you said, it's you know, whether people are deploying their models to be consumed by random people or to be consumed by they themselves, it's very similar technology. And, you know, if you think about a giant company like like Amazon, you know, when they started building their internal services or they started, you know, doing their service-oriented architecture, the legendary, you know, memo to everybody in the company about how their services are going to be deployed. It did sound very much like this. Like, you deploy your services, even if you as a team within a giant company like Amazon are going to be the only consumers of that platform, you deploy it in a way such that it could be externalized, such that other people in the company could easily consume it. Uh, And it sounds like that even, that principle extends to you building this this marketplace of machine learning model deployment. So I want to talk about that. So if we're talking about machine learning model deployment, instead of just these normal restful services, you know, people think about just deploying their own microservices. It seems like there are some stark differences between deploying those two types of services. And I think this is why people like Uber or Facebook, they create their own AI model pipeline, which I think consists of all this tooling around the deployment process, maybe even the training process. So these AI pipelines at places like Uber or Facebook, what does that consist of?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's worth mentioning that the world of, although there's a general desire of always having an all-in platform, the fact is, is that training and productionizing or deploying or operationalizing, whatever the word you want to use there, is very, very different core, core differences, you know, for example, like the training process, it's stateful, right? So like you need to keep state during the, the training process. Um, it's usually single user. It's usually very long running from like a per job perspective. It's very long running, uses tons of GPUs and CPUs and, has, and gets distributed amongst many machines, uses a ton of data, right? So data locality and the amount of, of data used in that process is, is very big. On the flip side of that if you start thinking about what the operationalization is or what some people call inference of a model which is the actual classification or prediction side of things it's usually stateless versus stateful it's short but very intense bursts of compute and it's by definition usually a multi-user problem right so if you think about i have a fraud model that's running you know every credit card transaction that i run right like there's millions upon millions of endpoints potentially hitting that model at the same time or replicas of that model to process that transaction and give back a result which lasts only very, very few seconds. So if you boil down to the problem to its, you know, bare, bare like kind of characteristics, the training and the operationalization side of things are very, very different. And so designing a system that encapsulates both. It's going to be difficult, hard, or you're going to have to give up on one side or the other, right? And you can see that in the industry that we've seen is like, there's been a specialization towards one side or the other. So when talking about AI pipelines or things like you mentioned, like the projects like uh, Michelangelo or Twitter's DeepBird or TRX at Google or Facebook uh, Facebook Learnerflow at Facebook, the project itself tends to be the encapsulation of both Training systems and production systems, but those systems are actually quite separate. And the main driver to get those things out is this idea that, like, hey, we productionize one model, we productionize the second model, we productionize the third one. Like, oh, we might be doing this a lot. You know, we might be adding models to a lot of the different pieces of our um, organization. We probably want to reuse these in a lot of cases. And how do we make sure that we only have to build this once, but then also follow a certain pattern so that we can scale them, monitor them, et cetera. And so these companies have noticed that, you know, AI is here to stay to a certain degree and machine learning is probably important for them and that they're gonna be integrating it into multiple different parts of their organization. I think Facebook stats said that 25% of their engineers interact with FB, FB Learner Flow. I, th- I believe that's an accurate statistic. And so if you start thinking about the size of the amount of people who are going to be interacting with the serving side of things and the fact that like their machine learning and AI teams are actually fairly small compared to the rest of the developer organization, now you suddenly start seeing why it's really important to start a certain sort of level of standardization, but also centralization around these services and the mechanisms that you do it. So that's kind of really the the driving force. And so this is very much in line with what we see in terms of behavior, where not only are people using us as their hosting service, but they're also adding many more models under their accounts and different parts of their engineering organizations are using that. And that's also led and to our essentially full blown enterprise product where we've actually grabbed everything that we've built for the marketplace, including all our admin tools, metrics, you know, everything that we built from the back end to run. Algorithmia.com, and we've productized it and we now deliver it to the largest organizations in the world so that they can actually run internally their version of a serving platform in the similar way that you know twitter built their own and google built their own and facebook built their own a lot of companies do not want to build their own they want to buy this product and that's what we've actually been giving them
0: so the flavors of software engineering that exist within one of these AI platforms that Uber has built or that Facebook has built or that Google has built, how similar are they across the different companies? Because like, I think in our last conversation, we talked a lot about like the variety of container orchestration solutions that there were two or three years ago. I mean, there still are a variety, but there's been convergence. It's one of these things where people were trying different things, but it kind of... There's an advantage for the ecosystem as a whole to eventually converge on on a single solution because, you know, we find that many of these problems in software engineering, it's the same problem at every company, in every product. And so container orchestration is one of those examples where, yeah, you know, Mesos works in some contexts, Kubernetes works in some contexts, but in general, like Kubernetes is kind of, it does the job. And, you know, in our last conversation, I don't know if you remember what we talked about, so sort of the lack of a winner-take-all nature in software engineering in general, but AI training and deployment, like if I talk to, to, to Facebook about AI model training and deployment and I go and talk to Uber about AI model training and deployment, are they gonna tell me that they do the same things or very similar things, or is it is the use case different? Is the fact that I'm developing an AI platform for Uber and is being deployed to it's real time gig economy application, is that starkly different than the, the problems that Facebook is tackling?
1: Um, so I think you're, we can separate it in a couple of different things. One, which is on tooling and idea behind tooling or what they've used. And then the second one is around use cases, right? So um, not hard to imagine that Facebook probably spends really, really a lot of time on NLP problems. So natural language processing. Understanding what the updates are. Understanding what news articles say. Understanding what's being, you know, how to do relevancy for their ads, understanding what conversations are about, what people are talking about, what the relationships between people talk about. So um, you can see them spending a lot of time and if you go look at their research, which they make pretty public, like they spend an immense amount of time on natural language processing. Um, Same thing for images. They spend a ton of time on images and being able to understand the meaning of images. And so one of the things that you know if you want to kind of like group this into a category which is like a really broad category so it's a little bit unfair but like Facebook spends a lot of time doing AI for unstructured data right if you think about you know freeform text freeform images freeform voice to a certain degree now freeform you know so they spend a really lot of time so you can see that they will probably everything that they do my intuition would be that they probably need to build the best tooling for dealing with unstructured data on the flip side of that Uber doesn't deal with that much unstructured data, so like we can go find use cases. I'm sure of them trying to figure out things on images, or maybe for their like you know, self-driving car stuff. But like the truth is, is that like probably most of the data that Uber deals with is structured, right? In the sense that like they have GPS coordinates, movements, you know what the accounts are saying, where they started, where they ended. So a lot of the training and a lot of the building of models is probably around know route optimization it's probably around pairing and auctions and like you know kind of like smart agent like resolution i think they just mentioned an article recently that they're trying to detect if somebody's drunk before they get on the you know the car or not and they do that by understanding like you call you, you call the you know the know the uber and they're kind of picking up on signals around like what your gps movement is like how you're moving etc etc which i know sounds really creepy but like they're trying to figure out this is research not like something that they're doing but you know they can kind of make an assumption of like well you know if you stumbled across like 17 streets before you got to your uber then maybe you're going to be in a certain state of mind that is not ideal for the driver and so uh, the problem sets are different and so because the problem sets are different the preferred tooling might be different. You, so that's what kind of one angle, right? So like where it's like, and, and I actually know that, you know, like Facebook does a lot of PyTorch, right? And PyTorch has like really been, and, and they talk a lot about that, and the Cafe, Cafe is the other one that they use a lot, Cafe too, so, because it works on mobile. So they use certain frameworks and tools because they're super comfortable with them. They've also kind of like done their little, their bet on putting back work into those open source projects. And so to make it even better for them. I know that Uber, for example, is pretty heavily invested in TensorFlow. And so what ends up happening is that these companies, they come, especially because they're fairly research driven, right, like you have some like really famous people working on the labs there on, and all of these in terms of AI and machine learning, they make a bet around a tool, and then they go build out the tooling that they need for that tool and framework. That's a little bit different from how it's gonna happen wider. Right. So when you start thinking about I'm a Fortune 100 company, and so I'll I'll pick a random example of a company that like I know has a lot of developers. So like JP Morgan Chase has 28,000 developers, right? So just give you an idea, right? So that's like, uh, you know, if you don't count the drivers, I'm pretty sure that's like significantly more than the total amount of people that work for Uber. And that's just developers, right? And so if you start thinking about, well, if the world of machine learning is really going to penetrate every single side of development it's going to appear in all sorts of lines of businesses then it's not hard to start imagining that a company like J.P. Morgan Chase needs to start thinking how are 28,000 developers going to interact with data science and machine learning and at that point the use cases are way more varied right so like you can imagine fraud on credit card all the way to like you know, HR problems to you know, accounting problems, like the whole gamut of things where you're not going to make a bet on a tool, you're now going to have to make it a lot more generic, right? So kind of like this idea behind kind of how like app servers were pretty generic, you could like launch any sort of app from them. And so that movement, I think as we see larger companies with larger developer populations, which have much more heterogeneous use cases and needs, then more generic platforms are going to be needed. And now you start building for, as a general platform, it becomes a lot harder to build that type of stuff internally.
0: Yeah, now when you're talking about the differences between a company like Uber and a company like Facebook, you know, first of all, these companies have the resources to build their own specific thing. And they've they've developed a core competency in machine learning, so they're comfortable enough Rolling their own—that's one side of this conversation. But the other side of it is like what you, what you said about the the core difference being like the structured versus unstructured data. That's more of a question of that seems like more of a question of like how is the data being presented to the training platform or the the training process, and it has less to do with the deployment because once you have the the model trained you know and and you're ready to deploy it and like present it to anybody that's going to consume it you can separate that as a disjoint problem so are you are you thinking about like is your is the solution that you build is it mostly for the deployment process or are you also involved in the training process
1: you can train on our platform though it's not what we really specialize on we are deployment and then the runtime and to your point, I'll clarify that you're absolutely right, where the unstructured versus structured data is really important at the training time. But actually at the prediction or classification time is just as important because the input into the classification problem is going to be either an unstructured image or an unstructured video or it's going to be an actual structured data source like maybe a, um, a Redshift storage. So you will see the, the separation between structured and unstructured data on both sides because you're gonna have to do that. So I'll give you you're gonna, like you're an e-commerce website and you're writing a recommendation model on your front page, right? And you're tuning this recommendation model in one way or another the access to those indexes to the kind of like doing the nearest neighbor type stuff that is going to be from a structured data source in almost all cases versus if you're like doing a product some, catalog correct exactly product catalog or some like actually generated tables of, you know affinity that might have been built by your data science team internally saying hey people who want this product also want this or these products are related and stuff like that versus you know I upload an image to Facebook and it immediately tags my friends and says hey should I tag you know Jeff in this should I tag Diego in this that is there's a different at the classification point which is also on the structured and unstructured data point
0: so, so just to clarify for people who don't know, so the difference between structured and unstructured data, I think, could be defined as the degree of schema. I mean, well, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's, first of all, it's a blurry definition. So like structured data would be something like a, we could say structured data, is something like a product catalog where the fields are well defined. You've got the title of a product, you've got maybe the SKU number, maybe you've got an image associated with the product. But if you're talking about an image itself, like a photo, a photo is a very high dimensional piece of data. You can derive a lot of different things from a photo. Or, you know something like a, an audio file. it's it's a very rich piece of data. So from your point of view, why is it in terms of building a tool for people to deploy, their models easily. Why is the differentiation between the structured data consumption type and the unstructured data consumption type? Why is that relevant to you for your the AI deployment layer? Absolutely. That's a great question, actually. So so I think your definition is like,
1: you know, right on. I do also think like, you know, can, it can be blurry. So if you're going to be a machine learning platform that runs classification, prediction, inference, whatever you want to call it. What are the core tenants that you need to be able to do? One of them is I need to be able to retrieve data from somewhere. I need to be able to do something with it, the kind of classification process, and then I need to put the result somewhere, right? I mean, that's like core, like otherwise, how does it get consumed from a uh, application perspective? And so the core difference from a platform like ours is going to be like, how do you access these data sources? Because accessing a database and reading from a database and processing from a database, and then putting it somewhere else is different from accessing and reading from a file storage. So, so that you know, that's at the kind of like the base level of why you need the differentiator. So, there's a data connector issue here, where you know, where you have to build out and then how you query those connectors and how you use them, and then how you move data through the system, right? It'd be really foolish to try to move a bunch of data off of a Hadoop cluster, right? To process them elsewhere and then bring it back to the Hadoop cluster, right? So you have to be careful because in some cases, these data sets might be Giant. So from an inference and from a platform, you have to start thinking about data gravity. You have to think about where you're actually processing the data, how you're doing it, how you're connecting it, and what the actual best way to connect to those data sources is. So these are really, really relevant from a production platform is understanding where, you know, as, as I said, you know, our goal as a company and our product is, and I tell this to our engineering team all the time, we should be able to lift data from anywhere, process it, and put it anywhere else. And so the actual differences between structured and unstructured data become really core to how the product interacts with the data sources at these companies. And to add to that, you know, one thing that I think is particularly relevant is that we don't get to be prescriptive about how the data works or where the data is or where it's being stored. Because if you think about if you're a deployment you know system, you're a production system, the data systems have already been created, right? In, in many cases, if you actually think about the general process of, you know, there's data collection, data structuring, data modeling, and then production, and this is kind of follows almost any one of the analytical, pro- you know, any analytical process, everything from BI to, uh, you know, traditional, you know, predictive analytics to machine learning. These process, you know, d- deployments at the end, right? So this means that data collection was already solved to a certain degree, ETL processes already exist, there's a structuring component that already exists there. There's probably a training component, whether that be on the data scientist laptop or in a training system or whatever that is. And so we're coming at the end, which you know is exactly where we want to be, but all these other components are already there. So we actually have to adapt to make sure that we work with what already is there because nobody's going to adopt our platform if we're trying to tell them, hey, you should change the way you do things for you know, the first three parts of this process to just be able to use us. So a big part of what we do around our thinking is how do we get to be plug and play into the normal workflow of developers and be essentially as valuable as possible without having to influence any of the things around us.
0: I did a show a while ago with a company called Dremio and uh, Dremio, they're really working on trying to make data access within a large organization with a lot of disparate data sources a little bit easier. And uh, in that recent show that I did with Tomer from Dremio, we talked a lot about how data is stored at a large company like Coca-Cola or JP Morgan with its 28,000 developers or Procter & Gamble or State Farm, one of these Older organizations that did not start out as a software company, but they have had to become a software company, and they have such a high volume of data, there's so much value trapped in that data. And so there's a lot of problems that are trying to be solved at, at the, those companies are trying to solve. There's a lot of vendors that are trying to build the right solutions to give to those companies. And so I'm sure you're starting to look at this at this area because you're trying to solve one specific problem that these kinds of enterprises are going to encounter. So can you give me a picture for the data problems within one of these big enterprises, and like how you're hoping to
1: address those problems? Yeah, so you know, again, there's a ton of companies that are focused on the data problem, data management, data structuring, collection. Um, And this is really something that we don't you know, we can have an opinion and we obviously help drive an opinion around certain things, but we pretty much don't get involved. We really have made our platform plug and play with almost any data management provider out there so that once this issue is solved for them all we need to be is like okay what's your api to access these systems and then we can pull and you know we'll be able to pull from there or push to there with the kind of you know like security and all that stuff that you do so so we try to be really really not prescriptive on this because i think it's an entire industry to begin with and so so it would be impossible for a company to like focus on multiple of these things. When you're going to look at these companies, you know, from that perspective, to your original point is that you have to just go under the assumption that there's gonna be a level of like heterogeneous like data storage there and that you know i'm sure that somebody would love to be like you know we store everything in these three types of data stores would be great but like that's never going to happen in a large organization like that only works maybe at a startup and and that's beyond that it doesn't scale and so then you start thinking about you know okay well what's the data management process what's the modernization like it gets exasperated even more if you think about a modern organization today any of the ones that you mentioned now you're starting to say hey not only is it that like there's like dozens of different kinds of storage for different things different use cases different groups but they're actually stored in different locations not only in different locations sometimes in like completely different types of infrastructure so you might have a team that is storing some stuff on azure you might have a team that's storing some stuff on on aws you might have like really really large data centers built out that are like you know more traditional ibm oracle like like systems and so an organization that is looking and saying, "Well, hey, we need to be able to access this data from anywhere and at any time, and to build out the future of our machine learning systems," is now thinking, "Well, I need access to all of this. How do I actually make this available under one plane?" And that is actually something that, like, there's companies out there solving, right? So, like, there's there, there's companies that look at that problem as a whole and and provide that and companies like tamer and muta like are are some of the ones that i'm familiar with but like they're 100 percent focused on the security and access and kind of like trying to provide a homogeneous front to all these other systems that need to query data but i think you know, the core is it's it's a huge problem, right? I think uh, one of our large Fortune one hundred customers, you know, I had a conversation with their CIO, and they were saying they had four thousand SQL, like sorry, took four thousand Postgres databases, four thousand, right? And again, like may, may, maybe that's an inefficiency. Maybe they only need two thousand. Like I don't know, I don't know enough about their business to be able to even like give an opinion around that. You know, you they're the experts, but. You know, that's the general, so this are the problems that they deal with. So there's, there's a whole industry of data management that provides kind of like the front to access and access controls. And so when we come in as a production and deployment platform, our rule is we need to work with that. Like that's, that's there, there's no way around it. Like we just need to work with those. And the good thing is, is that those companies have spent a ton of time and work on making their front end, right, like, like API front end or their access front end, pretty universal right so like they've done it through rest apis they've done it through like generic jdbc connectors and so we can very easily plug into that and and feed off of it but like our whole point is that we start after that system has already been either developed or, or or made present
0: so if i understand you correctly if i'm an engineer at a big insurance company And I've just been hired to improve the insurance rate risk calculator that is based on the data that's in these legacy data stores. I'm sitting down for my to build my machine learning model. I've already got the data connector problem probably solved for me. And otherwise, why would I have been hired to do my machine learning job? And so I'm sitting down to do my machine learning job. I connect to the data connectors. I start training a model and the model gets good enough. I've trained it and and uh, you know it works on my machine. And then I get to the point where I want to make it an API endpoint so that biginsurancecompany.com can access my machine learning model and, as an API endpoint. And so this is where, this is the point at which plenty of developers hit a friction because there's all of these different things that go along with the deployment. Like, can you deploy in different languages? Are things getting cached appropriately? Are you running on a performant processor? Can you version your model? If, if you get a, a, lar- a large influx of data and you want to build a new version of the model, but you don't want to maybe deploy it to every customer at once, maybe you want to do some A-B testing or something like that, Maybe you want to monitor and log your machine learning model deployment. The point here is that there are specific deployment issues for machine learning models that are probably not captured by continue other continuous integration systems, and-, and that's kind of the problem that you are solving specifically.
1: Yes, so I think you described that really well. I do want to make one asterisk, which is, so I, want, you know, I have to do a little bit of a shout out to some unsung heroes. So you said, hey, they get hired as these data scientists and all of this is solved for them. So ideally, yes, that's how it should be, right? But the fact is, is that a lot of these data science and machine learning heads and VPs of analytics are being brought in with none of this being solved, which essentially puts them in a role where they need to actually go solve the whole data management and you know, data like you know, process. So you would hope, like the ideal world would be, and, and this is what we advise companies, is that like you can't really start with any machine learning, real machine learning projects and data science projects until you've at least had this addressed to a certain degree. But there's plenty of, as I said, unsung heroes there who are being brought into these organizations who they actually have to go guerrilla warrior their way through every single one of those problems before they can even get started on what they got hired to do. So I do I do want to just like point that out because there's, You know, I know you have a lot of like, you probably have a lot of listeners in this space and, you know, they're probably... And they're doing data cleaning. Yeah. (laughs) I've just told them that they're not doing data cleaning and they're thinking, no, my job is data cleaning. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that they're, they're sitting there being like, well, yeah, gosh, that would be great if that was actually how it worked. But, you know, so there's a lot of unsung heroes there who are fighting the battle all the way up. But you know, if you're going to design the process, you know, the expectation and the success, you know, and, and you actually can correlate quite easily on companies that have been successful in their data science and machine learning projects to having a very serious and dedicated data strategy for kind of the structuring and the modeling. And, and once that is available, truly bringing in these kind of like, you know, you know, really smart folks who can grab that data and iterate through it and, and you know, build it and then, they want to productionize and then absolutely that's where we solve the issue of scale and uptime and you know uh, you know the API part and moving it around moving data around and scaling it and then connecting multiple models together, right? So like a big part that people don't think is that even in the world of model deployment, there's you know pre-processing functions. The classification functions might be one, two, three. It's an ensemble. There might be a post-processing function. All that pipeline needs to be scaled together. It needs to be secured. It needs to be potentially audited if you're in a uh, regulated industry. And so, uh, the uh, as you said, like the full CI/CD process plus the actual you know uptime is really where you know the problem becomes really apparent and where they need a solution my kind of go-to like kind of a uh, joke is usually saying like look anybody can run a web server it's actually like really really easy to lift up a red server a web server but not everybody can run reddit right like so that's where the difference is right like you anybody could stand up a model with a simple api and run it on their laptop but if you're actually going to depend on the system to run your business if you're going to depend on the system to run at the scale and, and potentially like, you know, either business critical, or in some cases, you know, if you think about government, like, you know, like life, uh, you know, situations where there might be life and death involved, you better have security and audit and uptime and, you know, the things that you need around that.
0: So what's the conversation like with these enterprises. So, as you've gone from the world of building a marketplace to building, I mean, to selling to the enterprise, it's a very different world to exist in. So, how have you sort of ad- adapted your your ability of, of of selling, I guess, or or what has that evolution looked like? You know, from a business point of view.
1: Yeah. So, so I would say probably like the two most important things are two P's: patience and partnership so especially early on really thinking through how you and this enterprise like how do you bring value to them immediately and then how do you work over a longer period of time to make sure that you continue adding value or increasing value and if you can actually establish that partnership relationship with some of these large you know uh these long enterprises. And on top of that, you have the patients, right? Because they go hand in hand. The results are really, really good. You know, it's, it's not a secret. Some of these enterprise deals can be like a king making to a organization from a financial perspective, also from a, you know, reputation perspective. And so for us, it's really been, you know, we started really early on, you know, as soon as 2016 is when we started working with enterprises, we, you know, kind of kept it for the most part on the down low and you know we did it you know and it was a big part of exploration and partnership and you know holding hand in hand and saying okay what do you need? What are the problems that you need? How does our platform solve them? How can we make ourselves more enterprise ready? And then the final part really is hiring people that have done this before. So, you know, a little bit of I I wouldn't say, you know, we've added some personnel that is very experienced in terms of uh, working with enterprises. And then, you know, kind of holding to our first two things, which as I said, the patience and the partnership part, like we treat our large enterprises, at not as customers, but we treat them as partners. Where we understand that our product, being kind of at the forefront of this world, uh, you know, of this world of machine learning, like needs to be constantly evolving. And there's no better people to help us evolve it than the ones with the actual problem that we're solving. So, so kind of like that mentality of partnership um, has gotten us really far.
0: So, from an engineering point of view. When I look at this as a as a pure engineering problem, it sounds kind of like you're building a Heroku for machine learning models. You know, you're really trying to give a solution where you you take the, take the problems out of the purview of the developer and and that's sort of what what Heroku did in contrast to something like EC2. So how have you changed the platform itself because the the platform before was I think more just about this this marketplace side of things, but you, I assume you've had to build more uh, tooling that is kind of internal or, or give you know kind of a logged-in experience as opposed to this like marketplace deployment experience. So how has the product tooling changed?
1: Interesting enough that the it hasn't, it. and I'll, I'll explain exactly why. We had to run this thing like we as algorithmian we had to run with over seventy thousand developers, over five thousand models. on-call, you know, SLAs to large customers who are using our platform. Like, we had to build all of this in what we, you know, with a small team and being, you know, a startup, it's always been automation, 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 automation. And so one of the things, you know, if you think about it, we built a billing system for the marketplace. We built the audit system for security. We built, you know, kind of like the security that we needed because we run random code from the internet. You know, like the... There's a bunch of things that we built as tools for ourselves, which ended up translating into exactly the features that enterprises wanted to be able to run this themselves. And at the end of the day, what they're looking for, if you think about, you know, kind of maybe there's no transaction system, but like, they're running internal marketplaces, right? There's teams that are making available models inside these organizations, and there's other teams that want to consume them. So the actual interaction between the consumption and the creation is actually identical, even to the stake. the actual people who are actually involved, they're just all under one roof in an organization. So the tooling perspective actually hasn't, we obviously advanced it, but The really interesting part is that the actual philosophy around how to do this has been, how are we gonna enable a really small team inside these organizations to run a massive production system for machine learning across the organization? Happens to be that we've been running a massive production system for the world, and that we build tooling for ourselves, these things actually translate really well. There's obviously other things that like, you know, things like certain features, but I would say that, you know, like if you think about like, you know, single sign on and kind of like off controls and, uh, you know, being able to generate logs into an enterprise logging system. So there's, there's kind of these like extra enterprise features that we've actually had to go build as well. But the core of, from an engineering perspective, hasn't changed at all, which is really fascinating and you know exciting. And actually, why we've been able to ramp up you know so quickly into you know this kind of side of the business.
0: And last time we talked, we had some conversation about the homegrown containerization and compute management platform that you've built. Have you done any replatforming on the internal engineering side?
1: So you know, at the core of it, our platform is Git. Docker, Kubernetes, right? Obviously, a bunch of complexity internally to that and a bunch of things that we've built, but that's kind of like the the core components of our platform and that hasn't changed. We've obviously advanced it. You know, it's it's been fascinating to see Kubernetes advance at the speed that it's advancing. All great stuff for us. You know, we have a general philosophy that if there's an open source project that we can, you know, use and contribute to, then and we don't need a homegrown solution. Then that's the way to go. So we're constantly evaluating components of our platform and saying, "Hey, can we just use something that already exists out there?" And so that's kind of how I would, uh, you know, that's kind of how we've we've approached it. There's been a lot of changes in terms of the pro- inside those projects, right? So like last time we talked, Kubernetes had almost none or very little GPU support which is core core to what we what we do we, we run so many GPUs and now Kubernetes has actually gotten really a lot better it's not perfect it's not exactly where we want it to be but like we've been able to actually start paring down certain pieces of our custom code to be able to take advantage of more native tooling inside Kubernetes um, that's also allowed us to accelerate so that we can invest a lot heavier in kind of other areas that are really not in the Kubernetes world.
0: Do you manage your own Kubernetes or do you use one of these hosted managed Kubernetes
1: providers? We manage and build our own. So today we, you know, manage our own, you know, on a couple of different clouds. We also work cross cloud, which is another thing that is probably really relevant. So we wouldn't be able to use like one managed service to jump to the other managed service, although that sounds awesome. So if we can get there one day, that'd be great. We we kind of build out our own Kubernetes from scratch when we go and deploy and when we run ourselves.
0: Is that cross cloud important to you from a failover perspective or because some of your customers are on AWS, some of your customers are on Google, some are on Azure, and you want to be able to locate the models close to to their other infrastructure?
1: The latter is really the way to look at it. So data sources, you know, data gravity is really important. So if you think about, you know, data is expensive and heavy to move, but compute is super light and cheap. So especially with containerization and with things like Terraform and like scripting, like we can go build out very, very quickly compute resources in different platforms. Moving data tends to be, the slower process. So, you know, if you have a database in Azure, we're gonna to try to go build out our infrastructure in Azure to build it to you know to process that. You know, but if your data is like somewhere in like AWS or in S3, we're gonna to want to build it out there. And then on top of that, on a per region basis, right? Because you don't want to pay the data transfer in between regions. So these are all things that like, when you start thinking production, uh, while in training, you're just like, well, the data's here, we're just going to build it here, and then we're going to tear the whole thing down. When you're actually doing a production, like, the data might actually be in multiple different places, or the model is the one that actually needs to move from region to region based on where the data sources are and stuff like that. And so these are the types of problems that they only start being thought about once, hey, my model works on my laptop, what's next? And then they start realizing that there's this world of considerations that need to be taken, which is really where we specialize in.
0: So when we last talked, this is when I was still living in, in Seattle, in the Seattle area, and I thought Algorithm is really cool because I think it's one of the most interesting startups in the Seattle area. And, you know, it was fascinating, you know, stopping by the office and, and talking to some people, talking to yourself. I'm totally unsurprised to see that the business has continued to succeed and you've found other verticals to get into. And it sounds like things are going really well and it's sounds like a fun and interesting job because there's a lot of opportunities for growth, of course, and other businesses to be built on top of it. What have been some of the challenges that you've encountered?
1: Well, you know, I think the any startup is going to have you know, growing pains, right? And so, you know, going from eight people to 16 to 27 to jumping beyond that, you know, at every single jump, there is challenges from a company perspective on like, how do you keep, you know, on mission? Who are the, you know, know, adding management layer, having people, you know, kind of really rally around things and and, and do that. So I think there's the general like kind of like growing pains of, of a startup. I mean, that said, it's, still a super exciting place to work. I think uh, that's probably the most exciting part of it all, which is we've been able to bring on a lot of really, really amazing teammates to kind of continue this mission and grow it. And it's accelerated everything when you accelerate everything you also hit potholes a little bit harder right so that's natural and so you know how quickly how hard can you hit the pothole without popping the tire is uh you know something that like a startup is always testing i feel like but the you know so that's kind of one of that the, you know from a challenging perspective i would say you know growth is hard you know so being able to define a new category which is what we're doing like when we lost talked even though we were doing machine learning deployment, if you really think about it, like nobody was talking about it. This is not a thing that existed. Not because most people haven't gotten to that side of the problem yet. Now it's actually a conversation. You hear a lot about it. You know, you hear more companies popping up around it. You hear about, you know, different cloud providers thinking about how they're gonna solve this problem. Um, and so, you know, that You know when we're essentially creating a new category where you're in a space where uh, you know this doesn't exist but so now you have to actually you know educate your customer on why you're needed and then it's really obvious to them at that point but then educate the rest of the organizations and the world on like hey this is when you need us this is when you don't this is what we do this is what we don't that's really hard that's a really hard problem to solve so so that's been another one of the places that we've know, spend a lot of cycles around, you know, messaging and how we change things and and, and stuff like that. And this, you know, even this conversation with you, which has been fantastic, if you think about it, like, you know, our product hasn't changed that much. I mean, it's gotten better. But the way that we have to talk about it, the problem solving, like even you picked up on it, it's like, hey, this is kind kind of shifted. It's almost like a new vertical. So that is actually a challenge in itself, right? How to address that? How do you educate you know, yourself, your, 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 everybody in the team, the organizations you're interacting with, and then the world at large.
0: Diego Oppenheimer, thanks for coming back on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really great talking
1: to you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Wow.